Hello, I'm Stuart Hardy with All In Sports Outreach, and I am excited about another episode of our podcast. And as we start this, I want to remind you of our mission statement as an organization. All In Sports Outreach exists to share the hope and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and promote unity and racial reconciliation. And in today's episode, we'll talk a lot about the impact of sports and the power of unity found in sports. I'm excited for you to hear a conversation with Coach Bill Curry. Coach Curry is definitely not a stranger to the world of sports and, and faith. His resume is full of many, many accomplishments, which you'll hear in this conversation. However, just recently, while appearing on the final Mike and Mike um, ESPN radio show, Coach Curry told a story that happened in the days following 9-11 as it relates to high school football and seeing unity in the community. After hearing that story, I immediately thought about we have to get Coach Curry on this podcast and talk more about the power of unity found in sports. So without further delay, let's jump right into the conversation with Coach Bill Curry. Coach Curry, you've always been a man that I've followed and respected and carried yourself with great character and class, both on and off the field. So thank you for taking um, some time to join me today. Well, thank you for those kind words, and um, I'm honored to be on with you. Outstanding. So to start with, there may be some listeners who aren't familiar with you and your background. So, you know, kind of start with a little bit of that. And um, you've enjoyed quite the career playing, coaching, even broadcasting, playing at Georgia Tech and some time in the NFL with the Baltimore Colts, Oilers, and Rams, coaching um, with Vin, under Vince Lombardi, and then coaching collegiately, Georgia Tech, Alabama, Kentucky, Georgia State, and then some time with ESPN. And um, so quite the career. Um, you were a two-time Pro Bowl center, three-time NFL champion. So in preparing for this, I was kind of going through your bio and was reminded of, you know, playing the position of center that you snapped the ball to two of – possibly some of the greatest quarterbacks, Bart Starr and Johnny Unitas. So tell, tell us a little bit about what it was like playing the position of center with two of the greatest quarterbacks to ever play the game. It was intimidating. I mean, <laughs> and neither one of those, that Bart and John were two wonderful human beings who put us at ease. I'm talking about the people that had to defend them, uh, the, the blockers, the big, supposedly big guys up front. I wasn't very big, but... Uh, but a lot of our guys were, and they always made us feel um, good about ourselves and about our ability to do our job. What that did, even more than would have been the normal case, it made us it made us more anxious to be sure we kept their jersey clean and, and kept them free of injury and protected them. So we would fight our hearts out. The bottom line is the way it felt to step in that huddle, uh, you could actually feel the uh, vibrations you could feel the energy in that huddle and, and and us looking at each other and we didn't have to say a word but there was communication we are not going to let anybody touch this guy we're going to protect him with our lives and that's the way we played and that's I think that's one of the reasons we won most all of our games wow and you also uh were coached by and mentored by some pretty incredible men, one being Coach Vince Lombardi. And, you know, and I, anytime I do some speaking um, with this local middle school, their football program, doing some uh, character talks, I, I usually bring quotes. And Vince Lombardi is one of, the, one of the, my go-to guys as far as motivational quotes when it comes to sports. And so I was just curious if you'd share maybe one or two things that you learned from Coach Lombardi. Sure. Um, 
he does have great quotes and he used all of them. He would hammer <laughs> us. I mean, he, he, he used them like a bludgeon. Uh, we thought, you know, we complained about it, but it got fixed in your consciousness that, um, you were going to have the right priorities, your faith, your family, and the Green Bay Packers in that order. Mm-hmm. Uh, we joked about, we, well, he gets those priorities out of order on the practice field. Well, <laughs> not really. We, we thought he did. But so hit th- those things that you're using, those phrases are really powerful and positive with your young people. But I think the thing that is left out about Coach Lombardi the most often is that he would not tolerate prejudice. He was a man of faith. He went to Mass every single morning. And even though I was not a Catholic, uh, I certainly respected anybody that went to church every day. Bart Starr said maybe he needs to go to church every day. <laughs> and we thought that was funny, and I don't think Coach thought that was very funny. But uh, we, there was such great respect among the African-American and Caucasian players uh, that was another reason that it was so hard to beat us. And a lot of teams uh, had quotas in those days. They'd only have one or two African-American players or none, and they bragged about it. Mm. Uh, Coach Lombardi, um, I believe, did it for the right reasons, which is he didn't care what color your skin is. He, he cared a lot if you could play football. He cared if you were a good person. And so the men on the team black and white, respected him for that and respected each other. They knew that that was expected. And then, of course, he was a high school physics teacher, so he hammered at repetition. We ran our plays more times, more often, in more situations under him than uh, any other coach. And I think there there are a lot of reasons he was a great success, but that's a couple of them. Yeah. So uh, another um, incredible man that you were able to coach and be mentored by was the legend Don Shula. Maybe, you know, kind of do the same thing. A couple, one or two things that you learned from Coach Shula. Well, Coach Shula had the same attitude about uh, racial equality. He didn't, he didn't care about uh, pigmentation as far as making our team. And he had a lot of great leaders, both African-American and Caucasian, but he Two things that set him aside, uh, he built a relationship with each player. Mm. He would he would do things like I clipped a guy. The first game I ever played for him, uh, he had allowed me to be the special teams captain, and that was a big deal to me. Uh, but I, I had a clip right in front of the bench, and he rushed out on the field and had a few choice words for me. Well, I was in the heat of competition, and I, it was between the white lines, so I had a few words for him. Same language, and I'm not proud of that, but that's what I did. And uh, we're watching the film a couple of days later, and the assistant coach said, Curry, is that a clip? And I said, well, it might be. He said, well, let me make a suggestion. The next time you decide to dog cuss the head coach on national television, you make sure it's not a clip. Do you understand? (laughs) And I thought, oh, Lord, I'm going to have a one-game career with Don Shula. He's going to fire me today. I really thought he would. Wow. And so I went and found him. He took me in the equipment room, and I um, abjectly and humbly apologized. Coach, I should have never done that. I know that I shouldn't have yelled at you and said those terrible words, and I apologized. And you know what he said? He smiled, and he said, I kind of like that. Wow. Just don't clip the guy. <laughs> well, one reason we played so hard for him is if he decided he believed in you, he would never give up on you he would move he moved me from position to position until finally I found a spot where I could be a starting player and I don't think any other coach would have done that and 
I'm eternally grateful to him. And he took a lot of guys that nobody wanted. I was one of them. And he gave us a chance to play. And a bunch of them are in the Hall of Fame. Some of those Dolphin guys made the NFL Hall of Fame. And they were free agents when he found them. So his ability to build those kinds of loyalty relationships, I think, was his really strong suit. Wow, that's 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 powerful. Um, you know, one of those guys, one of those guys, Lombardi, has the best playoff record in the history of the NFL. The other one, Don Shula, has won more games than any coach in the history of the NFL. I think that those are the, the main reasons for that. Wow, that's good. Very good. And I mentioned, you know, and kind of briefly talking to the bio that, you know, you were also coached collegiately. So you, you kind of went home to coach at, at Georgia Tech. So what was it like to start a your college coaching career, kind of going back home? Well, um, Bobby Dodd was my college head coach, and we had some great assistants at Georgia Tech as well. And again, my career was saved by one of them, uh, John Robert Bell. But Coach Dodd uh, emphasized integrity and class attendance and education and then football. Mm. And he kept the priorities in that order. Coach Lombardi similarly emphasized those priorities. And human beings that do that in any walk of life who really keep those priorities generally find success. And Coach Dodd forced us to go to class and to behave ourselves. He was he was a kind and gentle man unless you broke the rules. If you broke the rules, you would regret it for the rest of your life. I cut one class and they ran me till I could not stand up. I, wow. I decided I would. I decided that chemistry <laughs> at eight o'clock in the morning was a wonderful thing after all. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> so anyhow, to have Coach Dodd, uh, and he also forced us all to play special teams. So I could cover kicks and block for kick returns and play on punt return team and snap for the long snap. And that's the only reason I made it in the NFL. So I, I just um, I owe my education, my goals in life, and the opportunity to, to play some more football to Coach Dodd. And then one of the assistants when I was there was John Robert Bell, who believed in me when nobody else did. And we all need somebody to do that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I know why you were coaching at Georgia Tech. Um, I grew up an Auburn fan in the state of Alabama. So there was a time when that Auburn-Georgia Tech game was a big deal. Well, it was a very big deal. Um, and I'm, I think – in the, all the years that I played and coached against Auburn, the team I was on, out of the eight or ten times, I think we won two of them because Auburn was always so tough and had so many big, fast guys. Um, but it was a great – it was a great rivalry, and uh, we loved playing against them and trying to measure up and see if we could beat them. Uh, even though we didn't have great success, we had a lot of respect for those players. Yes, sir. And so – we started this organization in, in, in Selma, Alabama, so we have a lot of listeners from, from Alabama, and, you know, naturally a lot of them are University of Alabama fans. And so, um, you know, you go on to coach at, at Alabama, you led the Tide to an SEC championship, two-time SEC coach of the year. So maybe, you know, if you'd share with the listeners one or two highlights of your time at Alabama. Well, the highlight of the time at Alabama – was being the coach for those great young men mm. that came there to play. And we had great young men everywhere we, we coached. But at Alabama, there was a special understanding of the value of our sport. Mm. And uh, 
we had the same issues at every school about class attendance. You have to, there was always a few guys you had to get them up in the morning and make them go to class. Well, that was also true at Alabama, but they, they had such a sense of mission and purpose. When we went on the practice field, you never had to motivate anybody. Hmm. You just put them in a, put them in a crimson Jersey and they knew exactly what they were supposed to do. So that was the great joy to me that our guys played so hard. Um, and I would love to have won more than we did there. I, uh, if I had it to do over, we would. We'd have a better head coach. But it took me a while to learn and understand that process and the way it worked there. But it was it was a great privilege to walk that sideline of those great human beings. And then Coach Bryant had befriended me when I was young. It's a long story, and we don't have time. But mm-hmm. I had such a sense of loyalty to him uh, and the way he coached football. Uh, that his family kind of adopted my wife and me, uh, May Martin Tyson, who was his daughter, who lived in Montgomery and was married to Judge, Judge Tyson, and then their daughter, Mary Harmon, who was former Mary Harmon Moman, um, just kind of adopted Carolyn and me. So we were we had a, a wonderful experiences at Alabama. I would love for it to have gone differently, but mm-hmm. that's just the way our business works sometimes. Absolutely. So, you know, the Iron Bowl was just a couple weeks ago. And, you know, maybe for those listeners not in Alabama that that don't see the magnitude of that game from the coach's perspective, how big is the Iron Bowl? Well, it's larger than life. Um, And that's that's an overused phrase. But I played in four world championships in the NFL, three of them after it began to be called Super Bowl. And I played and coached in the Georgia Tech-Georgia rivalry. Mm-hmm. And in all of those events, none of them measures up to the Iron Bowl for wow. sheer ferocity. And and the difference in the Iron Bowl is that it's year-round. I mean, it's every day. Um, you, have to, you have to be focused on beating Auburn or Alabama uh, every day. I mean, I'm walking across the parking lot in July – Nice lady walks up. She's probably 85 years old, dressed to the nines, and she grabs me and says, "Are we going to win this year?" <laughs> I knew exactly. I knew exactly what she meant. She didn't have to say which game she was referring to. And this is the middle of the of the off season, so it stays on everybody's mind. And it really is. Um, we had a wonderful preacher over here in Atlanta. We, we went to uh, Northside Methodist Church. And, and when we went to Alabama, there was some controversy. So he called my wife, Carolyn answered and he said, Carolyn, are y'all okay? I'm, I'm, I'm concerned. She said, Oh yeah, we're fine, Bill. You have to understand his name was Bill Floyd. You have to understand that over here in Alabama, football is like a religion. He said, Oh no, honey, it's a lot more important than that. <laughs> That's true. And Absolutely. we've laughed about that a thousand times. Absolutely. I tell my kids, you know, I left Alabama in 1992 and lived in various states and now I have three three kids of my own and I talk to them about that and I tell them all the time that when someone moved into our school new you asked them their name and the second question was Auburn or Alabama you didn't ask where they that's came right. from or their family it was just that's all that mattered so yeah it is you have to declare you have to declare in the crib <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely um, and we could go on and talk for hours on your career you know Kentucky then you go to ESPN and as a as a football analyst for 10 years, but I'm curious, um, after that, 
you were asked to to go to Georgia State University and to help start their football program. What interested you in that opportunity when you've been out of coaching for for ten or so years to, or even longer than than that to to get back into it and to to start something from from the beginning? Well, my wife Carolyn is a scholar, and she always has been her whole life, and she married me on the condition. She said, look, I, I, I'm going to drop out of school. She was an undergraduate at Agnes Scott College uh, out in Decatur. I'll drop out and work at Delta Airlines until you finish, but I'd like to go back and get my finish my education after that. And I said, fine. So when I finished, she went back and uh, finished her undergraduate first, and then she decided when our kids got school age, she wanted to go on for her Ph.D., mm. Uh, master's and PhD, which she did. Well, the only way she could do that, she could take the kids to school, drive to downtown Atlanta, and the history department accommodated her schedule and helped her so that she could take classes for 14 years to earn her master's and her PhD. So she's Dr. Carolyn Curry right now only because of Georgia State. Wow. So we have a huge debt of gratitude to Georgia State. We both grew up in Atlanta. My father and her mom both worked in downtown Atlanta, and we were anxious to see downtown Atlanta revived. Mm. And Georgia State is, is reviving downtown big time right now. And football has helped some, and it will help more as time progresses. And um, so those are the reasons that we wanted to take on the challenge, and we, we did our best. And, and just like I feel about the other jobs I had, I'd like to have done better but we did the best we could. Absolutely. You know, we are um, an organization, a podcast. We, you know, we do talk sports, but also um, about faith. So, you know, I'd be curious if you'd share a little bit about your faith. Did you grow up in the church? And at what point in your life did you realize that, you know what, I, I need a relationship with Jesus? Well, I'm one of those guys who uh, made an early commitment to Christ. Mm-hmm. My father, my father had been a hard-nosed hand-to-hand combat instructor in World War II, and then a national weightlifting champion. And I watched him. Uh, I watched him as Christ changed his life because he went from a, a sort of a bitter uh, atheist to a powerful Presbyterian Sunday school teacher, only because Christ came into his life through a bunch of his coaching friends at Georgia Military Academy. So I watched that when I was seven, eight, nine years old and, and, uh, in Sunday school, it was the next natural thing was for me to make a commitment. So I did, but, um, I've run away from Christ many times since then. Mm-hmm. And I'm ashamed of that, uh, in various ways, but he's always there. He always beckons me back mm. and I'm back to stay. Uh, I'm sorry that I, uh, became errant at times, but I think a lot of people do that, certainly a lot of people in our business, because football becomes the God. If you're not real careful, you can call yourself a Christian. If you're spending 100 hours a week on football and, and 20 minutes on your faith, <laughs> that's not what God had in mind for us. Yes, sir. And I was, I was guilty of that. And I thought I was doing the right thing. If you work harder than everybody else, you should, you should uh, help the young people that you're supposed to help and also win some games. But I allowed my faith to take um, second place too many times, and I've learned not to do that. So that's the that's the biggest change in my older years 
And it's been like this for um, 15 or 20 years. You have to recommit every day. Mm. And if you will, um, Christ will always meet you more than halfway. And you can make progress in the areas uh, where we all need whatever our specific sins are. He um, is the only answer that I've found for them. Absolutely. So that's a, that's a good um, way to kind of set up the next question. I know we have a lot of student athletes and coaches that listen. Um, and, and athletics is a platform. It can be used for good or for bad. And, and, and now is not the easiest time for, for student athletes or even coaches in the school system to, to live boldly for Christ. So what advice would you offer an athlete or a coach that's listening that wants to be bold and use this platform that God's given them? Sometimes young people, I would, this was another one of my flaws, we think bold means be judgmental. Mm. Uh, look down your nose at people who make mistakes and take them aside and tell them how they ought to live their lives. That's not what God means by being bold. By being bold, that means walk away from the situations that are going to be destructive, where you're going to set a poor example. Uh, a guy named Jim Rohn, used this quote he coined this phrase and i've used it a lot with students um there are two pains in life the pain of discipline the pain of regret mm. you choose i think god expects us to be disciplined and to do the thing that that we know is right 99 percent of the time we know what's right before we act That's even right. when we do the wrong thing we almost always we can't very seldom can we look back and say, well, I really did not know what I was doing. We usually do. And the pain of discipline to walk away from that pill or that funny cigarette or that booze or get behind a wheel when you've had several beers or the stuff that that uh, that happens so often in our society or uh, be immoral in, in, in the sense that you destroy a young lady's life um, or your own reputation, those things. Walking away from those things usually is very brief. There's a brief period of, oh, gee, I wish, oh, I'm, I just better not do that. Mm. But if you slip and you do the wrong thing, you're doing it intentionally, and the regret lasts the rest of your life. Mm. That's the difference, the pain of discipline, the pain of regret. And God gives us the strength and the fortitude to pass up those temptations if we will. And I would love to say I'm really good at that. I'm not. But I hope I'm getting better till the day I leave this earth. Amen. Amen. So one of the main reasons I wanted to have a conversation with you was just a few weeks ago, November the 17th, on the final show of uh, Mike and Mike on ESPN Radio. I know you've been a friend of, of that show for, for a number of years. You told a story of traveling through the state of Alabama the days <laughs> yeah. following 9-11. Um, yeah. And I'd, I'd love it if you'd just share that story with us. And, and you know, and really, it really speaks to, you even talked about, about your story with, with Coach Lombardi, that he had no prejudice. And, you know, it's no secret that we live in a divided culture. So I'd, I'd love it if you'd just share that story and then any advice you would have to offer anybody that, because I truly believe that people want unity. You know, I, I think it, you know, deep down at our core, everybody wants to live in unity, or most people do, and we do see that through sports. So I'd love if you'd just share that story and your thoughts on how sports um, does bring people together. 
The story I told that day was um, starts with the fact that most of us know where we were on 911 of the year 2001. Mm -hmm. Most of us can't remember where we were on 913, which mm. was that Thursday, Thursday afternoon, two days after the twin trade towers fell. Where I was, I remember because of an incident that occurred, and it was in the state of Alabama. I was driving from our home in North Carolina to Birmingham to broadcast the Southern Mississippi University of Alabama football game, if indeed it were to be played. The NCAA and the SEC were meeting to determine whether or not football games would be played at all that weekend. ESPN had wisely decided to put all of us on games that did not require us to fly. They didn't put a single soul on an airplane that week Wow! for the obvious reasons. They, they reassigned us to go to places where we could drive. So I'm driving along, and I stopped for gas in Atala, Alabama, and I'll never forget it as long as I live. So I started filling up my car, and the filling station attendant recognized me, nice guy. He said, well, Coach, are we going to play these games this weekend? And I said, well, I don't know but you might be the first fan in America to find out if this cell phone rings while I'm <laughs> in your station. Well, it did. And I was told, go home. We're not going to play. A good decision. So I walked back up to the counter, and he was back there, and I, I got his attention, and, and I look in his eyes, and I say, we're not playing. And I'll never forget his face. His face went red. His jugular veins popped out. He got this very intense look, and he said, let me tell you something, Coach. Come Friday night in Atala, Alabama, we're going to play football because mm. it means a lot to us. <sighs> wow. It wow. means a lot to us. So I, I got in the car, and I was in such an emotional state of turmoil anyhow about what had just gone on, and, and we were all wondering, are, are we in the midst of, is this the beginning of a, of a real war? Mm. And of course, we found out that we were, and that we're still fighting it in some ways. Mm -hmm. um, I decided I would try to evaluate it from a spiritual standpoint. I just said, ask God, tell me what I'm dealing with here. Mm. I don't understand. I don't understand all these. Why would it mean so much in Atala, Alabama, to have a high school football game? And then it began to dawn on me that it means a lot in Valdosta, Georgia, too, and Pueblo, Colorado, and Seattle, Washington, and Las Cruces, New Mexico, mm -hmm. and all over this country, it means a lot for our children to get in that huddle on Friday nights and Saturday afternoons, and yes, even Sunday afternoons, because that's where the community huddles up. Mm -hmm. And when you step into a football huddle, you see, football is the only sport in which every player needs every teammate on every play just to survive. Mm. The United States is structured similarly, and we have forgotten that. Wow. But you study, you study that huddle. You can't be a racist and stick your head in a huddle anymore because the guys will call you out. Those people that sit in the stands, they don't have the same pigmentation or the same religion or the same background. But what happens when one of their sons scores a touchdown? They hug, they embrace. The high school football games on Friday night, that's where the community huddles up. And we not only live by that in America, we love that. We cherish that. And I had never thought about it until that moment. Wow. That's a powerful story. And you're right. It's a great reminder that, um, you know, we're doing something we enjoy, like high school football. We do. We don't see people um, on out, outward appearance. And it is such a great 
spiritual picture of the way God designed us to live. And that's to love everybody the way Jesus loved us. That's Yep. There are no qualifications on that unconditional love. And that that that's supposed to happen in the church, and sometimes it does. Thank God. That's supposed to happen in the business world, and sometimes it does. Mm-hmm. It always happens in the football huddle, always. That's great, and, and really, that's really um, what drove us in 2015 to start this organization in our hometown um, of Selma, Alabama, was we, you know, still a community somewhat divided, and we started thinking and praying through, how do you bring people together? And we just kept going back to sports, you know, and, and you love sports, you love Jesus, that is a way to bring people together, and you know, and like I said, when I, when I saw, when I was watching that final Mike and Mike um, broadcast and seeing that senior story, it just reminded me. It was, a, it was just an encouragement to me that, um, you know, we are one. We, we must be, and we're being observed right now by our Heavenly Father. Mm. And every single one of us who sees these things is going to be held accountable for what happens in our country next. So we all need to be active in building togetherness and not separateness. Amen. That's good. So the last question I was going to ask you is we, um, every episode of our podcast, we talk about this because the name of our organization is All In Sports Outreach. We took the All In from Colossians 3.17 and whatever you do in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We talk to kids all the time about what that means, not just... um, in the spiritual sense, but what it means in sports, at home, in the classroom, is that no matter what you're doing, you need to you need to be all in. So what does that mean to you in your personal walk with Christ? What does it mean for you to be all in in your walk? Well, to me, after making 75 years of mistakes, uh, to be all in means to give him all of it. Amen. Give him everything, every part of me. Don't hold back because... Oh, gee, I love being critical of such and such a group, and I'm, mm. I'm just going to keep that as my little bailiwick, and I don't like this group or that group. No, that's not your privilege. If you're all in, then you give it all to God, and he will help you to overcome your prejudices. He'll help you to overcome your weaknesses. doesn't mean you're going to be perfect, but it means that when you do make a mistake and you confess it, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins every single time. That is all in. But you have to pay attention and you have to stay in touch with him. Amen. That's good. That's good. Well, thank you again for joining me. We've covered a lot today, but thanks again for taking time out of your busy schedule to 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 talk to me just for a few minutes about your story, but about unity. So it's been a blessing. Thank uh, you. Awesome. And I know I've always been encouraged by you and your your boldness and just always living a life of high character and, and, and for Christ. And, you know, I just think the story that you, that you told of Atala, Alabama is a story we need to keep telling about the power of sports and the power of unity. So, um, so thank you again. And, you know, and I need to end this with thanking our listeners. Thank you for everybody who listens and, and shares these podcasts and please share this episode with as many family and friends as you can to help spread the message of Christ. But, and spread the, the message of unity that is only found through, through Christ. And as always, we love hearing from you. You can find us on Facebook, All In Sports Outreach, or on our website, allinsportsoutreach.org. And again, thank you for listening. And whatever you're doing today, we just encourage you to be all in.